A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Two Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Gaber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And I want to first of all apologize to all our uh, loyal and dedicated, the great community of listeners for um, the delay in what's in, what's in our ongoing series of uh, Great American Jewish Cities. Uh, technical difficulties arose and it won't be able to happen uh, today. We'll hopefully... We'll make it up for you very soon. So instead, I have another great treat for you. We have the next installment in our selection of stories from Making of a Gadol and related stories. The Making of a Gadol book by Rabbi Kamenetsky. We had a very immensely popular episode in part one. So we decided to capitalize on that and select another few gems um, along with other related stories um, uh, for... For today, so I'll start off first of all with a another letter I received, and we're not doing a city episode tonight, so at least have a letter from a previous uh, city episode. The last one we did was Pittsburgh, which was also we got a lot of great feedback from, and I got this great letter, which I'll uh, read you an excerpt from. Um, here it goes. If it wasn't for a small company in Pittsburgh called Heinz. There wouldn't be an Orthodox Union Kashrus department today. Heinz was the first major company to have a Kashrus symbol on their cans, and they even helped design the iconic symbol that appears today on all OU products. Many different personalities were involved in OU, and it's a fascinating topic for a podcast. That's one part of the letter. Later on, the same uh, listener writes... Also, Pittsburgh was the home of Mr. Rogers. And uh, that's the end of that letter. And I can't believe that I forgot when talking about which different people were in the neighborhood in Pittsburgh. So one of the people from the neighborhood that I forgot to mention was Mr. Rogers. So we'll have to rectify things like that uh, as well. So we'll go on today to talk a little bit, uh, some some of the stories in the making of a Godel by Rabnasa Kamenetsky. And one of the great stories there, it's not the only place that it appears, I've seen it in other places, but he brings it there, 
is when re, re, the great, re, and I usually say this in Lublin, in the Yeshiva Sachmi Lublin, and now that we can't be going these days, so at least we'll get to say over the story. When Rameir Shapiro was building his Yeshiva, Yeshiva Sachmi Lublin, it was going to be in a Chesidashi Yeshiva in Poland, in Lublin, and he wanted to, you know, make it the greatest Yeshiva in the world, in every sense, and in a spiritual sense, in a Torah learning sense, and also in a physical sense. It was going to be a, a majestic edifice. So one of the things he wanted to do was to study the model of Litvashi yeshivas, the Lithuanian Torah yeshiva world, and he went on a tour of a bunch of yeshivas in, the, um, in, the, in, in that area of Poland where the Lithuanian yeshivas were. He spent time in, in, in Mir and Baranovich and Radin and one or two other places, and when he was in the mirror, he noticed that the Litvisha boys in the mirror tucked their tzitzis in, as most uh, most Jews in Lithuania, especially in the yeshivas, and especially yeshivas that belong to the Muslim movement, the tzitzis were tucked in, they were not out. That was the uh, yeshivish way back then. So, but in Galicia, by the Hasidim, of course, they wore their tzitzis out, so he asked, uh, he asked them, why are your tzitzis in? So this was this, uh, they decided to play around with this Hasidish Galitziana Rav. So they made a joke with him. They said, well, we don't want to embarrass the boys in the yeshiva who don't have tzitzis. And apparently Rameir Shapiro took it seriously. So when he, or he decided to go along with the joke, either way. And, and when he got back to Lublin, he sent a box of tzitzis uh, to the mirror, and he wrote a little note. He said, this is for all the boys in the mirror who don't have tzitzis, so here, the, here's a present for them. When Ebrachim heard, the Ruchel of the Mashkiach of the mirror, when he heard about it, he uh, he rebuked them. He said, he, you know, he said a rule in humor, which I guess is is good to know about how to say jokes, advice from Ebrachim about how to say jokes. He said that you only can say a joke to someone who you know will get the joke. But if they don't know and they're not going to understand, they're not going to get it, then don't say the joke to him. It's interesting that a similar story in the mirror happened with a a um, a, uh, a gabai or an assistant of the of the of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the, the Rayas, the Friedrich Rebbe, who, who went to, sent, or maybe it was the Rashab even, maybe it was many years earlier with the Rashab. Um, either way, it happens to be that the that that at the time there were plenty of Hasidim. In the mirror, the mirror was one of the few yeshivas that had quite a significant, uh, like like not Lumja had that, Radin had it to a certain extent. There were yeshivas that had that. Um, most many other yeshivas did not have it at all. You know, you were not going to find a, one in Slabatka like that. But um, there were Hasidic Shabbat in the mirror. In fact, there was a fundraiser that Blazio Finkel arranged in the great cities of Poland and Warsaw and Lodz. So he wanted to enlist the the, the uh, support of the two great Hasidic Rebbes in Poland, the Alexander Rebbe and the Ger Rebbe. So you have this, and, and this exists. This I've seen uh, pictures of of this incredible document, a a a you know a, a letter of support to, to encouraging their Hasidim to support the yeshiva signed one one letter from the Alexander Rebbe, another letter from the Ger Rebbe, the Mrayemes. And another letter to round it all off from Chaim Meiser Grzynski. So here the Mir, Mir Yeshiva then, as now, is the great unifier. Because you can imagine to have the Alexander Rebbe and the Ger Rebbe on the same letter was no small feat. And to be able to have that, only the Mir was able to pull that off. And for such a great cause, 
So, uh, so you have that. Now, as it happens, Rameer Shapiro, he, um, during that same visit to, as he doesn't bring in the book, but I happen to know the story anyway. Um, the, the, he, when he, he was, he was talking to the boys in learning. He was talking to the Talmidim of the Yeshiva in the mirror in learning. And at one point, you know, there were lions in the mirror. There were, there were, uh, mighty, mighty Bachram and learning in the mirror. And Ramir Shapiro, who was not, who was not, uh, you know, he, he didn't, he was, he was pretty strong himself. So they were, they were having it out. They were speaking and learning, getting very animated. And at one point, um, they stumped him. And which was no small feat, and Ramir Shapiro, who, who always liked getting in the last uh, the last line, he said, "Well, when I'll be your age, I'll be a big Talmud Chacham like you, and I'll have what to say." And here, the Lublin Rosh Hashiva, the Piyatcha Kaverav, was making a joke that here is Galicia. He was already a Rav and a Rashiva, and in the mirror where they got married very late, it's as if he was still younger than the Talmidim, than the Bacharim in the in the mirror Yeshiva. Um, at the same visit, he visited Radin. He spent about a week with, in Radin with the Chavetz Chaim, and allegedly the uh, story about him uh, about him uh, wanting to eat by the Chavetz Chaim Shabbos table without the Chavetz Chaim's wife there, um, and the Chavetz Chaim not uh, allowing that and insisting that his wife does sit at the table. If that story actually took place, then it happened on that Shabbos when Rameir Shapiro was there. And Ramesh Shapiro in general had a great sense of humor. When he was fundraising once, um, just one story, there's many of his uh, sense of humor. When he was fundraising once in Western Europe, he was in Frankfurt, and he was the guest of, of Rabbi Solomon Breuer, the son-in-law of Rav Hirsch, and the Rav of the Frankfurt uh, uh, separatist Kehila. And uh, Rav Breuer, who worked, with, worked very closely with Ramesh Shapiro in Agudas Yisrael. Rabbi Breuer was one of the founders of Agudas Yisrael, and of course Ramesh Shapiro was the president of Agudas Yisrael in Poland and a representative of them in Parliament and very active in in uh, in the in the Agudas Yisrael. So, uh, Royer asked Rameir Shapiro, "What do you think of my Kehila? You've been a few days fundraising here. What do you think? We have it's not Poland, it's not Galicia, it's not amongst the big cities of the Hasidim, and yet we still have a very from Kehila. What do you think of it? Are you impressed?" And Rameir Shapiro again, he with the sharp line. He said to him, let me tell you, I was just walking to Shul now to, for Mincha, and on my way to Shul, I passed by a nearby store. And the store sold all kinds of food products, a Jewish-owned store, and it also sold ice cream. And the ice cream in the store had your heksher. You know, it's an Ehrlich store, a, a, a religious Jew owned it, and it had your heksher. And as I'm passing by, I said, wow, this ice cream is 100% kosher. But it's so cold, and that was and that was his answer. And uh, and he said, you know, in Galicia, our Yiddishkeit is has a warm kite. It's very warm. It's fiery. It's it's uh, and that's of course with with Hasidus and everything. And um, and uh, you know, but each one has their has their own way. Um, another story he brings in there, which is a again, a, it brings it's it's a much broader context as he has a whole. A whole piece on the kosher kitchens that are set up for soldiers, Jewish soldiers in the Russian army, and it's not something to be taken for granted because generally, when uh, so, uh, Jewish soldiers were drafted into the Russian army, for the most part, again there were exceptions here and there, most of them left Yiddishkeit, most of them left Judaism. Of course, if someone served a full term in the Russian Tsarist army, they were allowed to live out, afterwards outside the pale of settlement. 
which meant they were allowed to live further away from the mainstream Jewish communities. And very often they were there for a long time and together with the atmosphere of the Russian army. And here we have a situation where the Jewish communities of Russia, in Minsk, and the Chavetz Chaim was very active in it, and other rabbis in throughout the Russian Empire would would um, would would set up kosher kitchens in their cities or near army bases to be able to provide kosher food for Jewish soldiers, Jewish soldiers who they didn't know, um, who already may be distant from Yiddishkeit. Not only that, but they would use communal funds. And communal funds, of course, were always very limited, and they were supposed to be used for communal institutions, the local uh, hospital, old age home, cheder, chever uh, kadisha, um, all the... The shul, all the expenses of the community, and for the poor of the community, soup kitchen, stuff like that. And here they uh, allocate funds, and there are all kinds of people who are involved in these types of act- activities for a very long period of time, throughout the time of the uh, Russian Empire, to be able to provide what's called the kosher, kosher kessel, the kosher kitchens, for the, um, for the Jewish soldiers. He goes on to talk about the yeshivas in Minsk, because his father, Yaakov Kamenetsky, and Many other people, Reuven Grzovsky, Rebaran Cutler, and others, learned in the yeshivas in Minsk before they came to Slobodka. And it was, a yeshiva, it was a city that actually had quite a few yeshivas, and most of these yeshivas are not so well known today. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about some of these yeshivas in Minsk. Uh, it goes in great lengths, and it actually, I saw the original article in the memorial book for the Minsk Jewish community. There's a fantastic article in Hebrew by got his first name, Gershuni, um, who, who Rav Nassim is actually quoting, but I saw the original article, the beautiful article about the Rabbanim in Minsk and about the yeshivas in Minsk and the religious life there, a very about 15, uh, 15, 15, 20 page article on, on uh, Minsk religious life. Um, so either way, one of the yeshivas in Minsk was in the Maskila Eisen Shul, and the Rosh Yeshiva was a fellow by the name of Rav Shleimah Golovensitz. And that's actually one of the places that Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky and Rabbi Aaron Cutler learned there for a period of time before they moved on to another yeshiva there. And it was a yeshiva that was a feeder to Slabatka. Rishlami Golovensis encouraged guys to go from there to Slabatka. He would sometimes, you know, sometimes when they needed a lot of encouragement, he would actually bring them to the train station and ship them off to Slabatka because he felt like they needed to move on to the next level, they needed to move out of Minsk, and he felt it would be better for them over there. And uh, he's one of the people who sent... Uh, those two greats, Rabbi and Rabbi to in Slobodka. A lot of people are responsible for it, but he was one of the ones I- involved. He later on, he was an amazing person. Um, he was later on, he was a Rav in Moyolov, which was a big city and deeper into the, uh, into the pale in Russia. In his later years, he lived in Yerushalayim. In fact, his grandson is my neighbor, um, lives next door to me in, in Beit Shemesh. And, um, he told me a story. About about his grandfather, about him, related to his grandfather, um, that is not in the book. And he told me that when he was many years ago, he was a bacher in the Chevron yeshiva, and there was uh, things going on. There was some politics in the yeshiva. He didn't want to go into details. And it was at that time that Rev Beryl Schwartzman had returned to Eretz Yisrael, Rev Dave Schwartzman, and was starting his yeshiva in Beis Talmud, Beis Talmud in Sanedrin Murchevet, and. So this grandson of Rabbi Shlomo Golovens is, is telling me that he was a bacher in Hebron then, and he tried to organize a a group of bacherim, a group of, of students in the Hebron yeshiva, to leave Hebron because of everything that was going on there. And we're going to leave and go with Rabbi Dov Schwartzman, and we're going to start this, be the nucleus that starts the base of Talmud, this new yeshiva. And he was going to take a group of, of good guys, 
And Reb Chatzkel Sarna, the Rashiva Chevron, found out about it. And he called him into his office and he started bellowing at him. He started yelling at him. And he told him that he pounded on his desk and he said to him, Dein Zeide hat geboit slabotki yeshive. Und sein enekel will chorv machen slabotki yeshive. He said, your grandfather built up Slabatka by sending his students in Minsk to go learn in Slabatka, And his grandson is coming and trying to destroy Slabatki Yeshiva by taking away the guys. So that's how he uh, he said it to him. Um, another you know, again, there are quite a few yeshivas in Minsk. One of the more, more, one of the one of the more famous ones that pe- that people have actually heard of was Blumke's Kloys, named after a woman. I don't know how many yeshivas in Jewish history are named for women. Um, an amazing uh, woman, Blumke Vilenkin, who who was a, a very righteous individual, very and uh, wealthy, and she supported um, the Shagasari about a hundred years before. Um, 200 years before, almost, um, she, she, uh, Shagasari wasn't known as the Shagasari then, as before he wrote the Sefer, he was known as Rableib the Rosh Yeshiva. Rableib Rosh Yeshiva, he had a Yeshiva in Minsk, and it was, it was also a time of tension, because the, the Rav in Minsk was Rebichil Halprin, who wrote a history book among the many, he was a tremendous Hamachach, and he wrote others for him too, but, but, uh, one of the Svarim that he wrote was the Seder Hadoyres, a, History book, fantastic, and Rebichil Halpern, who was was the Rav, and there was tension between him and the Shagasari, and then later on with the son of Rebichil Halpern, after he passed away, Ramesha Halpern, and they didn't get along, and Rebleib Rishishiva, the Shagasari, had to uh, leave the town, and and uh, he came back a second time, he was in Belajan, he was a Rav, the whole story of the Shagasari, perhaps we'll get to another time, but either way, this uh, Blumka Velenkin, she supported him, and she opened the yeshiva for him. Shagasari gave her a bracha that she should have a long life, and she settled down in Eretz Yisrael at the end of her life. And either way, um, so she started this yeshiva, and it was called Blumka's Kloys. And Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky actually learned there for a while. And, um, and interestingly, later on, uh, the the one who another person who became a rabbi in Minsk was a Rafal, uh, a Talmud of Rabbi Shagasari, who later was the rabbi in Hamburg in Germany and was known as a Rafal Hamburger. So he, they, they, there there was no tension when Rafal Hamburger was the Rav in Minsk and the Shagasari was still there. There was no tension because the Shagasari said, what do you mean? He's my Talmud. <laughs> he can do no wrong. And of course, uh, you know, that's a, a Rebbe-Talmud relationship is, is always different. Um, now, a sign of the times um, was, of course, the the secularization, the acculturation into the into into Russian society, has uh, you know the Enlightenment, Haskala literature, and there was a it was the times of change. It was revolutionary times. Also, there was a lot of ferment of change in the air, and and uh, both uh, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky and Urban as young. Uh, um, as young teenagers had to not just uh, fight the winds of change in the time like everyone else, but it was from within their own families. And Rekonetsky said later on that he's the only one of his siblings who remained religious. All of his siblings and aunts and, and some of his aunts and uncles and cousins, they all, they all uh, were lost to Yiddishkeit, to traditional Jewish life because of what was going on at the time. And it wasn't an easy 
the people, the family members that he boarded by in Minsk tried to discourage him from continuing on in his yeshiva studies. Famously, Rabbi Cutler had a sister, Malka, who tried to convince him to leave Slobodka. And that's, I'm not going to get into that whole story because it's pretty famous. She sent him letters and the altar of Slobodka intercepted the letters. A whole different thing. I'm not going to get, get into that. But, um, but, uh, but what's, what's, what's amazing was, is that Rabbi Aaron Cutler, despite of his sister, his older, she was old, his older sister, who she did so much to try to take him out of yeshiva and to try to convince him to leave Yiddishkeit and try to get him integrated into Russian society and intellectual life. Despite all that, Rabbi Aaron Cutler in his later years took care of her. And, and, uh, and she never married. And she, she was a professor of mathematics in the Sorbonne. In uh, in Paris, first in Berlin, and later on in Paris, and she survived the Holocaust in France. And Rabarin Cutler, after the war, brought her over to the United States, and he ensured that she would get an entry visa. He took care of her, and when she came to America, she was able to get onto the faculty at Columbia University in her specialty in something in mathematics. And then in her later years, he set her up in an old age home. And he would have his son, Rabbi Schneer Cutler, go and visit her uh, periodically to make sure she's okay and has everything she, that she needs. Now, contrary to popular myth, there is a myth that uh, allegedly uh, um, his sister did not know how great Rabbi Cutler uh, became. She did know, and she, she had, knew exactly how famous he was, but she didn't like it. She, till, her, till the end, she said, oh, you know, he, she, she disagreed with his, with his path. And he still took care of her. Rabaran and his wife would come and visit her and it would feed her when she was old and sick. Rabaran Cutler would go and feed his older sister and he would say to her, Malkala, you need to eat. You need to take care of yourself. And an amazing, an amazing, uh, relationship. And she actually outlived him. And Rabaran, uh, was Nifter right before, uh, not right. I was Nifter before she did. Um, an interesting, an interesting similar story of the, of the sign of the times. I heard uh, from someone who was actually involved in the story, where Yerucham uh, Levavitz, the Meshkich the Mir, had a sister who left Yiddishkeit and moved to America. Many years later, this is a true story, many years later, the granddaughter of this sister um, was living in some sort of American community in the United States, I'm not sure where, and uh, she didn't like the local public school, and they still were somewhat traditionally Jewish, uh, not observant. And so the only local private school that she approved of happened to be a day school, an Orthodox day school. She figured, all right, how bad could it be? You know, we'll send a, we'll send my son to an Orthodox day school. So she started, and the kid is is uh, getting into it, and it's a good Orthodox day school. And one of the thing, interesting things about the school was that any child who did well in his studies, in his behavior, in his learning, in his test, whatever it was, they put a picture of him in the main hallway opposite the office of the yeshiva. Now, they had three rows of pictures. That was the custom in this day school, uh, wherever it was. And they had three rows of pictures. The top row of pictures were pre-war G'dayle Yisrael. Pre-war, great rabbinic leaders, black and white pictures. The second row was contemporary Torah leaders, people who were alive at the time, and great Torah leaders in color pictures. That was the second row. And the third row was these students in the yeshiva, in this day school, who were doing well in their learning and their studies. 
And at the beginning of these three rows of pictures, it said on the, next to the top row, past, and next to the second row, present, and next to the third row, future. And this way it was encouraging the kids that this is who they're continuing, and this is what they what can ultimately become. So as it happens, the mother of this boy came to the yeshiva one day to take care of something, to pick up her son, whatever it was, and she happened to be near the office, and she sees that her son, or Perhaps the principal wanted to show her, get her some nachas, that her son is on the bulletin board, that his picture is up there because he's doing so well. So she shows, he shows the mother who's, you know, far, further away from observant Jewish life. He shows her that her son is up there. So she looks up at her son, and then she looks above, and then she sees the two, the, the two rows above her son's picture. She sees a picture of Rabbi Rucham Levavitz and didn't say his name, and she said, that picture looks familiar. Who is that? And he said, oh, it's Rabbi Rucham, Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, he was a mashgiach in the Mir Yeshiva. He said, Levavitz? That's why I recognize it. My grandmother was a Levavitz before she got married. And her husband, and excuse me, and her brother was a famous rabbi back in Europe. And it turns out that this was the great niece of Rabbi Rucham. And slowly but surely, and of course, it has a good fairy tale ending, which happens to be true ending. It's not just a fairy tale. That she and her family and this boy came much closer to, uh, they became completely uh, religious, and of course they lived happily ever after. But um, it, oh, it's a good ending to the story. Not every uh, story had that same type of ending. One of the other uh, um, stories that gets involved in, in the making of a gadol, which again is fascinating, comes up in a lot of books and a lot of sources, um, and it's a great story, it probably should be an episode of its own, is the Kovna Kailo, which was started in the 1880s in Kovna. But a few points that are, that are interesting that he brings out in the story of the opening, excuse me, the founding of the uh, Kovna Kailo, is how, um, is how the word Kailo was used in the modern day context for the first time. When this, you know, for instance, they used the, the word Kailo when describing the Jewish communities in Yerushalayim and Svas and Tveria. Um, in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, the Kailal Volin and the Kailal Prushim and the, and the, and the Kailal Ungarin and all the Kailals of the, of the, of the old Yishuv. But those Kailals were communities. And those Kailals were for the purpose of the distribution and the allocation of the funds of the Chalukah system. They weren't a Kail in the sense that they were young married, uh, Torah scholars, Learning all day—that wasn't the idea. The idea that the first time that kail was used um, in its modern-day context, the way we understand the word kail today, was in the Kavna kail. That's the first time it was used. But it's but it's even more interesting is um, is how it, it developed, how it was how it started, and 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 the reason that the founders, which I'll get to in a second, was the reason that they started is because they saw we saw Salanter primarily saw that wealthy fathers-in-law stopped taking promising Talmidei Chachamim for their sons-in-law. used to be, and that's how rabbis and Gedele Yisrael were produced in the, in the, uh, in the olden days, in, uh, before the modern era, was that there were always rich people out there, and they would take a, you know, a guy with promising potential as a son-in-law, and he would support him, and he would live in his house, and he and he uh, and he would uh, develop, and he would become a rav. He would become a rosh he would become a great scholar. He would write svarim, and that's how throughout 
the history of the Jewish people. That's how uh, great people were made. And in the modern times, there were fewer and fewer fathers-in-law who were willing to take, uh, wealthy fathers-in-law who were willing to take these type of people as sons-in-law. So they decided, Rabbi Salanta and others decided that it's incumbent upon the community to take on that responsibility and find those promising young Torah scholars and support them. The support that they received was for three years, max, and you had to find a rabbinic position. It was to, it was to train them to become rabbis and to become, to become future Torah leaders. That was the idea of the Kyle. And you had to find a rabbinical position within three years because after three years you no longer got any support at the Kovnik Kyle. And, uh, and you got a, a position. And the other interesting thing about the Kovnik Kyle was the amount of people who were involved in starting it. A, li- a long list. We saw Salanter was involved. Ritzik Khanan Specter, Alexander Meshulapidis, who was the Raven Raisin, also an amazing personality. Ritzik Yaakov Rhinus, the Raven in Lida. He wasn't in Lida yet, he was in Shvinsian. Later on in Lida, he founded the Mizrahi, he had the Yeshiva in Lida. A, a layman, also an amazing individual named Reblazer Yankiv Chavis, who was the father in law of Naftali Shrup. And of course, the one who supported the whole operation, among many, many, many other causes that he supported, the German Jew Ovadia or Emil Lachman, and the Rav Ram Schenker, another Talmud of Salanter, Yaakov Lifshitz, the secretary of Yerbitzukhan Inspector, Yerbitzukhan's son, Rabbitzvihir Shrabinovitz, the altar of Slabotka, Rabbitzlablazer, and more and more and more. There are so many great people involved in the endeavor of starting the Kavna Kailo. Um, one of the other tidbits, a couple, a few tidbits, not stories that he has in there, amazing. He has a testimony that Reb Itzela Panavizher, Rabbi Yaakov Rabinovich, the Rav in Panavizh, uh, he wore the Radziner Tcheles, so Gershon Hanachleiner, the Bala Tcheles, who was a Polish Hasidish Rebbe who had this new idea of, of having Tcheles, which, you know, he used it from the cuttlefish today, they take tchelis from a different, uh, from a snail, from the murex, something or another, and and uh, I mean, still the Radziner used the, their tchelis. It's different, different versions today. But then it was like hugely controversial, and allegedly Rabbitzelapanovizer wore it in secret, which you know is pretty astounding. He has another tidbit there that before the Alter Slabatka moved the yeshiva of Slabatka to Chevron and Eretz Yisrael. He asked advice about from Reb Meir Simcha, the Rav in Dvinsk, the Ar Sameach, and Reb Meir Simcha advised against it. He said the Slabatka idea and the yeshiva that you developed and the educational philosophy that you have and the Musr and the Torah learning and everything that you have about it was successful in the milieu of Slabatka. Not necessarily will it be successful in Eretz Yisrael, and he advised against them moving. Interesting that he did that. Um, he has another piece there on Reb Tzvi Hirsh uh, the son of the Kovner Rav, the son of Reb Khanan. So first of all, if he was the son of Reb Yitzchak Khanan Spectre, so why was his name Rabinovich? That was like already a common thing in those days, that um, very often sons had different last names than fathers. Last names weren't as formal as they are today. And it was easier to avoid the Russian draft if you switched your name because you're hiding your identity. And, 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 and if you were an only son... Then or an orphan, and sometimes they didn't draft you. Sometimes they did draft you. Draft you, um, but um, but uh, but uh, there was ways to avoid the draft by changing your name. And Rabbi Hirsch changed his name to avoid the draft, and he chose Rabinovich because it made sense 
many, many sons of rabbis in Russia had the name Rabinovich, because Rabinovich meant you're the son of the rabbiner, of the rabbi. In any event, he took over Rabbi when his father, when Rabbi Zichonon passed away in 1896, or Hirsch took over his father's position, and never became as famous because he lived in the shadow of his father, of the great Rabbi Zichonon. But he was a tremendous uh, Talmud Chacham and leader. He was not as, uh, he was underappreciated. And interesting, the, just remembering now, the draft, uh, the draft changing name was, was common. In fact, Rabbaran Cutler, his name wasn't Cutler, his name was Pinnis. His father was Rabbi Zalman Pinnis. It was a Rav also in, in Europe. And Rabbaran Cutler changed his name from Pinnis to Cutler in, in, to avoid the draft. Rabbi Zalman, his father-in-law, uh, advised him to do so. Uh, in any event, so Rabbi Shrabinovich, this son of Rabbi Khanan, at one point his wife unfortunately uh, got sick, and um, and 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 because of the, it was a debilitating, debilitating, excuse me, illness, and her mind went, and she lost her mind completely while she was still young, while he was still young, and she, you know, that she couldn't function. And people tried to encourage him to, in order to be able to have a family life, to be, she couldn't receive a get, she couldn't get divorced, obviously, and she no longer had a mind. And they tried to encourage him to get a heter mayor upon him. Get out of the marriage, you have to get married, you have to have a family, you have to move on. And he said, no, 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 she's still alive, she's just not healthy. He says, so I'm going to daven three times a day, and I'm going to get up to the brachan shmeinah esrei rifa'enu. Hashem, heal the Jewish people. And I'm going to have in mind each time, Hashem, heal everyone except for my wife. Because if she gets better, then halachically we're in trouble because, you know, I'm married to someone else and had termea, whatever. I don't know the halachas, but he obviously did. So that's, that's a problem. So how can I go ahead and daven Shemana three times a day? Hashem, heal everyone, but don't heal my wife. I'm going to want her to get better too. And he did not remarry till the day she died. For decades. He remained single essentially for decades. She was in a home. Um, at one point he discusses the publication of Reb Chaim Brisker. Uh, Reb Chaim Brisker's Sefer. Chidush Rebbein Chaim Alevi. A whole operation to publish his Sefer. Amazing story. There was a committee established in 1925. Reb Shlomo Polyachik, the Maitre Ilui who was already in the United States, he was Rashiva in Rabbi Nitzkochan at the time, Reb Lezer Yudel Finkel, Rashiva in the Mir, and Reb Lezer Silver, the one who was involved in everything, anything and everything in America, they set up this fund to try to raise money in 1925 to publish the Sefer of, uh, of Reb Chaim. It was such an a important endeavor that everyone gets involved. The sons of Reb Chaim, Reb Moshe Soloveitchik, when he was in Warsaw, and the Briskarov, his youngest son, and, and, and of course, Rabbach Ber. Rabbach Ber Leibovich is writing letters to people and telling helping them raise money and to get everyone involved and we need to make sure it happens and to see it through the whole publication. So you had all these great Rabbanim to, to, who set this goal for themselves. The Matrix didn't even live long enough to see it actually published, but just to be able to get the Sefer of Reb Chaim uh, to be able to be published that everyone could uh, enjoy it and study from it. I think we'll we'll take a stop here and save the rest for part three. We could go on forever. This could be uh, uh, for a lot. So this is Yehuda Gerber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at Yehuda 
geberer.com. Geberer is G-E-B-E-R-E-R. For questions, comments, sources, tours and trips, and of course sponsorships for Jewish History Soundbites episodes, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. Check out our website, yehudigeber.com, and I hope you enjoyed.